Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's Platinum Sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. everyone and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today we sit down with Shil Manat, co-founder of Better Tomorrow Ventures, a $70 million venture capital fund that invests in seed stage fintech companies around the world. His own startup experience includes two successful fintech exits, a payment company and a high-stakes auction firm, and he's a general partner of the 500 fintech fund. He formerly worked as a financial services consultant at BCG and started his fintech career at Kiva, a nonprofit P2P lender. And now please join me in a very interesting interview with Shil Manat. Well, Shil, thank you for joining us on the Warts and Fintech podcast. We are very excited to have you here. Can we start by hearing a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was a precocious kid, always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I went to Carnegie Mellon, made software for hospitals for a little while, then got into management consulting. And then actually is where my fintech career began because I, I left to join a, a little nonprofit called Kiva. Kiva is a website that lets individuals from the developed world make loans to individuals in the developing world for the sake of alleviating poverty. So we do 0% interest loans, and we've done billions of dollars of loans in the past 10, 15 years. And although it was a nonprofit, it was really operated like a fintech startup. A lot of the PayPal mafia were there early on, Reed Hoffman, Keith Rebois, et cetera. And this got me excited for fintech. I ended up going back to consulting, you know, worked primarily in financial services when I went back. So was serving banks and insurance companies at BCG. Then a buddy of mine from BCG had this idea for a payment startup based on some of the work we were doing at, at BCG. And then we started this company called Fee Fighters. It was a reverse auction for credit card processing. And then we built a feature that was kind of similar to Stripe, a payment gateway plus a processor all in one. But we actually got acquired pre-launch of that product by Groupon. And Groupon at the time was on its crazy, crazy run. And so we got acquired, reasonably good acquisition. And after that acquisition, I moved from where I was living, which is Chicago, to San Francisco. And I also finally had enough capital that I could start doing some angel investing, which I really enjoyed. So I started angel investing for probably three reasons. One, I had just moved to San Francisco, so it was like a way to meet people. Two. I thought I could get inspired by some of these people I was meeting and maybe join their team or start something similar. And then three, you know, I thought maybe I could make money here. I think I'm better than other people at this. But I think three, for anybody who wants to go into angel investing, number three should not be primary because if you are successful at all, it's going to take many years, like a decade for you to get any of your money back. So don't become an angel investor because it's going to make you rich. So then after Groupon, 
I started another company called Innovative Auctions. It's a auction platform for high value, hard to assess the, the price of assets. And then that company got acquired in 2015. Then I knew I wanted to become an investor. And the folks at 500 Startups had invested in my first company and asked me to join. So I said, sure, I'll come on board, but originally as a mentor. And then over time, I decided to set up a fintech-focused fund there called 500 Fintech. And we invested in a bunch of companies, probably some of the more notable ones. And these are all sort of pre-seed investments that we did. The more notable ones are uh, a company called Albert, Albert albert.com. It's a personal finance manager based in LA. There's a company called Chipper Cash that is the fastest growing payment solution in Africa. So it's like a square cash or Venmo for Africa. There's a company called Ethic. It's a sustainable and ethical solution for investment advisors. There's a company called Indio that builds workflow software for commercial insurance. They had a very successful exit already. There's a company called Kin, kin kin.com. That's a homeowner's insurance company. A company called Starship that's a health savings account. And those are, those are some, of the, some of the more successful ones. There are many others as well. So had that fund. And then during that time, I met this guy, Jake Gibson. Jake had co-founded a company called NerdWallet, that pretty successful fintech company. And Jake, I was able to recruit on as an EIR, an entrepreneur in residence. And over the last few years with Jake, got to really know and love Jake, working with Jake. And then we decided to partner up on a new fund that we started late last year. So we started this fund called Better Tomorrow Ventures, BTV, late last year. And we're just wrapped up fundraising. It's a $60 million fund focused on leading pre-seed and seed stage fintech companies. Fantastic. There's a lot for us to talk about and certainly uh, an exciting career that you've had so far. Going back to your entrepreneurial experiences, right? Um, fee fighters and innovative auctions. What were some of the parallels that you found when launching those two companies, some of the similarities? But also, what were some of the differences? Because I'm guessing the second time around wasn't exactly the same as the first time around. Yeah, they were actually very different. The first time around, innovative auctions was not like your typical startup, not venture back. Fee fighters was venture back. Innovative auctions. It was sort of at that time when I started it, I was taking a flyer on a bunch of different things. I was actually still working at Groupon. And I you know, was thinking about what's next. I thought, let me just put a bunch of feelers out there. Probably none of them will work. But if any of them do work, I'll know what's next. So started Innovative Auctions really on a part-time basis. And then as proof points became more and more known, that this was going to work, I started spending more time on it, ultimately left Groupon before I had vested fully. And I think one of the learnings was, for me, this actually is a reasonable way to start a company. It does not work if you're building a venture scale business. But Innovative Auctions was, at the time, we thought of it more as a project than a company. And it ended up being actually fairly successful. but. 
that was not the goal at the outset. The goal was a project that some friends would work on together, see where it goes. It ended up becoming a company that was successful. If I was a venture capitalist, I would not have given us money. Got it. And then you took a path that is somewhat common for entrepreneurs, and that is going from operator to venture capitalist. Talk a little bit about that and talk about your opinion on whether you can be a good VC without that founder operator experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of people, at least for me, I can say, when I was a founder, I was looking across the table at the VCs and I thought like, I want to be like those guys. And you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to do it, but then it ended up happening accidentally, which is I enjoyed angel investing and then 500 asked me to join. So there's no like straight and easy path to it unless you end up becoming wildly successful and have your own money to invest. That, that's not the easiest, but the, the most surefire way to do it. I think a lot of people, at least for me, the reason I do it is I genuinely love helping companies at the earliest stages. It's what gets me excited. Every day I wake up like thinking about ideas that I can work on with my companies and they are top of my mind and I love it. And for me, I have, I have a little bit of ADD. So it's like, it's easier for me to work on multiple companies than it is for me to focus and work on one company. So it's like the perfect job for me. And I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. That's great. And would you say there are commonalities amongst all the startups that you've invested in over time? No, I would say like, you know, what I've learned, and this is, people have very differing opinions on this. But for me, what matters most is the founding team. You know, some people say, no, what matters most is the market, or some people say, oh, the technology, whatever. For me, I weigh the team heaviest. And the reason for that is simple. At the stage that I invest, which is pre-seed and seed, anything can change in the business, but the founding team typically does not change. Or at least the CEO typically does not change. So for me, I'm investing in a team. And this is also why you earlier had asked about founders. Do you need to be a founder to be a successful venture capitalist? And the answer is clearly no. If you look at the early Sequoia guys, you know, they were not founders. Like Michael Moritz, who's a journalist, you know, one of the best venture capitalists out there. So I don't think you need to be a founder. I do think today things are different, though. And I think at the seed stage, if you had the option of working with a founder or working with a non-founder, all else being equal, you would clearly choose working with a founder. So I think that really helps, especially at seed stage. And what I tell my founders is at the seed stage, you want to work with the partner that is going to be most helpful to you. And that's typically people who understand what you're going through, like this founder empathy, and people who have experience building a similar type of business, either as a founder operator or as an investor. And so for us, that really helps because... Jake and I are both founders, and all we've done is invest in fintech for the past five years. So obviously, we're selling our own book, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Then at Series A, we tell people, actually, there, what matters most is brand, because you're going to be selling a lot of customers, you're going to be selling future employees, and brand really helps. 
And then, you know, at Series B and beyond, I think price, just go for the biggest, top, best price you can get. So we hear this concept from, you know, a lot of venture capitalists that we interview. And that's what you just mentioned, right? In, investing in the best teams. But how do you really assess the capabilities of a team or a CEO? Yeah, sure. So for me, what matters is, is this person able to clearly articulate their vision for the company? And do I think that they're going to be able to bring on people to execute on that vision? Is this person somebody that I see leading a company that has hundreds of people in it? Those are the things that I look at most. And then in terms of team composition, many of our founders are technical. Doesn't have to be the case, but we do typically like technical people on the founding team, at least. And you know, there's this ideal makeup that is the hacker, hustler, hipster. So there's like a CTO, it's the hacker. There's a product guy that's the hustler, product sales guy. And then there's the designer, which is the hipster. Some people think that that's the ideal team. I think that can be. I think you definitely need at least a couple of those components on every founding team. Great. The three H's. The three H's. And then there's also, (laughs) in terms of what we look for, there are the five T's, which is team, technology advantage, total addressable market, terms, and traction. And so if you think about like the things that a venture capitalist cares about, you can boil that down to those five T's. Excellent. So you just raised the fund. You mentioned BTV, Better Tomorrow Ventures. It's interesting because you, I imagine you've raised it in the middle of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of your meetings were probably mostly remote. So yep. it would be super interesting to hear about your experience and hear about the process and how it has changed over the last five or so months? Yeah, the bulk of our fundraise was done during the COVID time, as you suggest. In fact, we actually did one fundraising trip and it was uh, like the second week of March, right before everything, everything closed down was the only trip we did to fundraise. And then of course, everything else has been on Zoom since then. At the beginning of COVID, we thought, okay, well, so this is March, April, even the beginning of May, I think we thought, okay, our target was 60. Given what's happening in the world, maybe we should revise our target down to 40 or something like that. And we can still accomplish what we need to accomplish, but it won't be the same. And then we didn't actually revise it formally, but we thought internally, if we have to, we'll reduce it to 60, uh, to 40. And then it actually ended up being fine. Like everybody sort of mid-May and beyond Everyone came back and was really interested in what we had to offer in terms of our pitch that we are the leading seed stage fintech firm. And it's gone pretty well. I think most first-time funds take 18 months to raise from what I hear. And I think it's taken us like eight or nine months. So we feel really good about it. And actually, we're in a position where we ended up, we have more demand than space in the fund. So really feel fortunate. And then also we got LPs that we're really excited to work with. How were those conversations with LPs? What are LPs looking for these days? I think there are a lot of funds that look exactly the same out there. I think it's probably pretty hard if you're starting a new generalist fund and you don't have 
a particular angle that makes you successful, makes you win. For us, it's very clear. It's what I talked about earlier. Like, why will we win? Well, there are no other pre-seed and seed stage fintech-focused funds that lead deals like ours. And then if you think about like, why will we win? Well, you know, what I tell entrepreneurs is you want to work with people who've been there before, people who've been founders, and who's going to be most helpful to you are people who have that empathy. So Jake and I have both been founders, both with pretty successful companies. And we're fintech experts because like, this is all we've done. If we haven't done it ourselves, surely our portfolio companies have been through some of what you've been through. We can introduce you to our portfolio companies, which we always do during the process because we find that our portfolio companies are the best people to sell us. And so that's what I've enjoyed the most is working with founders. And I think that comes through when our founders talk about us to other portfolio companies or potential portfolio companies. Got it. Got it. And so you're focusing on fintech. Can you tell us a little bit more about your thesis? Yeah, sure. We invest across the board within fintech. So it's not like there's a specific area that we want to invest in. It's anything. But we have this overall thesis that the future of the world has a lot more fintech for a bunch of reasons. You know, one, infrastructure is lowering barriers to building. So like it used to be a decade ago, there was a neobank called Simple. It took them two and a half years to get to launch to a bank and they raised a ton of money. Nowadays, like a single engineer can launch a bank in six months. So the infrastructure has made it a lot easier. So that's led to an explosion in innovation. The last like 10 to 15 years gave us a lot of fintech companies that were really just finance companies that had moved online. And there wasn't a whole lot of actual innovation behind the scenes. And now there are all these APIs, partnership models, alternative capital, regulatory frameworks that enable true experimentation and innovation that I'm excited about. And I think a lot of non-fintech companies are going to be fintech companies. So companies like Uber, Airbnb, Shopify, Flexport, that you would not have traditionally considered fintech companies actually really are fintech companies at their core. And they're moving into financial services, partnering with startups like the ones that we invest in to do so. And I think we as a fund are interested in investing in not only traditional fintech, but also some of these businesses that are vertical SaaS or marketplace models that have fintech at their core. So an example would be, there are a lot of these so-called business in a boxes. So if you're the operating system for business, like let's say you're for yoga studios, there's Mind Body Online. For barbershops, there's Squire. For flower shops, there's Flume. These businesses are you know, starting out in vertical SaaS, but they have distribution to this customer base. They have a data advantage and they have stickiness because they're what the company uses to operate. So why not launch banking products into them? And we're starting to see that happen. And I think there'll be a lot of success from companies that leverage their existing distribution to add in financial services. Great. And what about geographically? Are you going to be focused only on the US? No, we invest globally. In the new fund, we already led one deal in Mexico. It's a company called Super, super super.mx. It's a parametric insurance company that the first product helps people in Mexico City who have suffered loss because of earthquakes. 
you know, there's an earthquake in Mexico City in 2017. And a year after the earthquake, 50% of the people still had not been paid on their claims. And two years after the earthquake, 20% still had not been paid on their claims because this is such a big earthquake. They had to fly in claims adjusters from around the world. And then, of course, insurance companies don't want to pay you on the claim. So these guys said, hey, instead of this complicated thing where we have to inspect the home, et cetera, why don't we just create event-based insurance? So if X magnitude earthquake happens within Y radius of your home, then you automatically get paid Z dollars. And so it's just a simple parameter-based insurance. And they're starting with earthquake, but you can do this in many categories, life insurance, health insurance, and then of course, more notably recently, pandemic insurance are all possible with parametric. And so these guys are starting in Mexico with earthquake. They'll probably move into some of these other categories shortly and also will move beyond Mexico too. That's fascinating. I'm actually very bullish on InsurTech in Latin America. So I'd like to hear that you're investing there. Yeah. So, the, the, I mean, LATAM is totally underpenetrated from an insurance perspective. We're excited about Super. So, Sheila, you have worked with multiple startups. You've seen a lot of board compositions. You've also sat on boards yourself. What would you say makes a good board member? Yeah, I think there's two different types. I would say there's like the board member who is hungry to be helpful, but young. And I would say I'm more of this type where I love, like, as soon as I get the email with the board materials, I'm reading through all of them, making mental notes that I'll bring up during the meeting. And then there are those with a lot of experience. And like, frankly, I don't have that yet. Although now I do have four or five years of being on board. So I'm starting to get there. But I have sat on boards with people who have 20 plus years of experience. You know, one of the boards I have is we have the ex-chief marketing officer of Google. And so he has experience that I'm never going to have, frankly. You know, he probably is not as hungry on working with the company and spending a lot of time on the company because he doesn't have it, frankly. But his experience speaks volumes. And when he does speak, we learn so much from it. So I think those two, I think it's important to have a little bit of each. Shil, we're obviously recording this in the middle of COVID. I have to ask, how has this affected some of your portfolio companies and also how has it affected you? On the portfolio company side, for fintechs, it has been largely positive. So I would say overall... It has been marginally positive in terms of, you know, it accelerated the shift away from cash. It also, a lot of people are sitting at home and when they're sitting at home, they are thinking through their finances. And then also when they're thinking through their finances, they think about how much they're paying for insurance. So our auto and homeowners insurance companies had people sitting at home thinking about that. And then life insurance was actually really benefited because People are not only thinking about insurance and finances, they're thinking about death. And as they think about death, for better or for worse, they are thinking about life insurance. And the traditional life insurers, it actually make it hard to get life insurance because you have to then get a medical exam. But some of these modern life insurers that are online, you don't have to get a medical exam. So that really helped those guys out a lot. And so broadly speaking, it has been 
positive for my companies, which is not actually what I expected to be the case in March. I knew it would be positive for some of my companies, but I didn't know so many. Another example is we have a company in our portfolio called Starship, Starship HSA. It's a health savings account product. They have been greatly benefited because, well, A, people are thinking about health, sure. But also, when all of this stuff started happening, there were legislative changes made in Congress that expanded what you can use the health savings account on. And so it made their product much more useful. And they actually lobbied Congress and spoke to people and helped sponsor bills to make this the case. And it's going to be better for all Americans, which is exciting. But that's another one that had been benefited. And then in terms of me personally, COVID, you know, it was really at the beginning, I thought it was like, I didn't think it was going to go on for six months or more. I thought, okay, this is something, you know, for the next month, two months, it's going to be a different way of living, but then we're going to go back to largely the same. And partially that was based on my previous company. We had an office in China. So we have, I have a lot of people in China that I know pretty well and talking to them, they had already basically gone back to normal in March when things started to get crazy here, or maybe the beginning of April, they'd started to go back to normal. So I thought, okay, this is going to be a few months and then we'll be fine. Little did I know that we would handle it so poorly that uh, it seems like it's going to be a year or more. And so that has been not so great once I realized, okay, this is not just a one month thing. This is going to go on for a long time. I thought, okay, this is not good. This new world in which we're living is not one that particularly suits me because I really enjoy talking to people and meeting people in person. But okay, I guess this is the new normal. And then now, it just is the new normal. It is what it is. And I think I'm sort of back to normal from a mental perspective on it. But it's certainly been interesting. You know, I've constantly feel like, what a time to be alive. All these changes are happening at once. In some fields, we're seeing, you know, decades of innovation being able to happen, happen very quickly because the market is ready for it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Crazy times indeed. One thing that we do here as it relates to VC is that traditionally 80% of companies would be in your geographical area. And now because it doesn't really matter and due diligence and all that is happening over Zoom, we might see more VC dollars going to you know, traditionally, uh, maybe not forgotten, but uh, traditionally not to areas that weren't of focus before for VCs. Uh, do you think that's going to be the case for you? I mean, we were pretty open in general before. So like, you know, we were geographically open anyway. So I think we'll obviously continue to be. And then in terms of areas of focus, we certainly do think about what areas might be benefited by tailwinds from, from COVID. But I don't actually think that much has changed for us in terms of what we're interested in. Got it. So Shil, before we go, we always like to ask our guests about some of their hobbies. So maybe you could tell us some of the things you do outside of work. Yeah, sure. I'd say like, first of all, I love my work. And I think technology, business, venture capital is the thing that actually gets me more, most excited. I feel kind of lame saying that, but it's true. And then um, I have some other like artistic interests too. I don't really watch much TV or anything like that. I acted in a movie that's coming out later this year. I like to do random 
art with friends, whether it's like shooting films or I used to host an open mic night. Another random fact is there's this event called the Zoom Bachelor and Zoom Bachelorette. And I was a contestant on these shows, which was kind of a fun, a fun thing. Being a single guy has been fun to like try new ways of innovating around dating in a COVID world. Little did I know that we're getting a reality TV star as well. So, <laughs> yeah. I think you're the first uh, movie actor as well that we've had. So thank you for joining <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's really fun. Thanks so much. <laughs> well, Sheila, appreciate you taking the time and hope uh, once we start going back to somewhat of, of what normal life was, you can also visit us on campus. Oh, I would love to. Absolutely. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.